Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Away across the silver-shadowed field, the barn owl tacks from side to side, backwards and forwards. Then, eye locked on its prey, it folds its wings back and falls like an arrow into the grass. We hold our breath for a few silent seconds that seem to last forever. Then the owl lifts up from the grass and labours slightly back to a gate stoop carrying a small, shuddering brown corpse, and we breathe. Those are among the closing words of James Rebank's English pastoral, an evocative, at times challenging, but ultimately overwhelmingly hopeful book that charts his progress from small boy, reluctant to venture out into the cold with his grandfather, through to his life now on his hill farm in the Lake District. You're listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and I'm really delighted to be joined by my guest today, the farmer and author James Rebanks, and Sarah Westerhouse, who with her husband Popko, farms a mixed arable farm in Essex. Sarah and James, welcome to Planet Pod, and thank you so much for joining us. And well, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, yeah, thank you, for, thank you for having us on. Yeah. James, I wanted to start with that small passage from towards the end of your book, because it really hit home to me, partly because when I was lucky enough to stay with Sarah way back before the pandemic started, I saw a couple of her resident barn owls flying out one morning hunting. And not only are they incredibly beautiful, but they seem to encapsulate the elegiac nature of the changing landscape and its fragility. And we've come really close to losing so many of those native species, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a, no, there's a number of them, aren't there? I mean, like the barn owls are a really important one to us as a family because we, we lost them. Uh, didn't realise it was our fault we lost them, but it was. And, and then they came back because of things that we did as we started to change our practices. And then probably the other one that I find really affecting, and it affects me every day because they're still here, but only just are the curlews. Yeah, so um, I'm probably meant to be talking about barn owls because that's at the end of the book. But the other the other bird that features quite heavily in the same way in the book is the curlew. And yeah, I, I, they're the first thing I hear in the morning, and they're one of the last things I hear at night. And that they were common, like really common, so common you barely looked at them when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't know how Sarah feels, but the idea that they might disappear on our watch feels to me profoundly wrong like we've done you can't get away from that that's just not right is it that, that, that our generation would be a generation that would lose something so common so normal and yeah so simple and beautiful it just those things hit you in the gut I think and and ought to bring you up short and if yeah. you're not bothered about those things, if you're not bothered about those things I'm I'm worried for you <laughs> <laughs> I very much agree with you James because I think when you when you go out and you walk and you hear so many birds that you know people say the population is dropping and you see that you've got them on your farm and you know that you're doing something right to enable them to be there it feels so right and I just love walking we've got um, lapwings and we've been providing plots for lapwings for 20 odd years but they're there they're raising young and you can hear them you can see them and yeah it feels it feels really good and and the and the the really crazy thing is I think the thing that it took us all along to arguably well way too long to wake up to is those things used to live in rural britain almost by accident they, yeah. they could cope with what we did and then and then we we for all sorts of other reasons that we convinced ourselves were good reasons we changed the rules we changed the structures around them we changed the landscape and suddenly they can't cope with most of rural england and 
Yeah, I, th I think it takes you to a really interesting place, doesn't it, where you begin to think really carefully about what economic development is, what what efficient food production is, how we balance it against other things. So I, I, I find those things fascinating. I think I think you start with a bird outside my house at seven o'clock in the morning and, and it leads it leads to some of the biggest questions of our age, I think. Yeah, and there's a lovely bit in your book where you talk about the, the ploughing around the curly plots, don't you, in the nests and and how your grandfather would stop and get out and lift the eggs and put them back and and the changing nature of of how we work the land has driven many of those birds and other species too, right out to the margins, if not away at all. What really struck me about your book, and, and I would say to listeners, if you haven't read it and you haven't bought it, go out and buy it now. I read it in almost one sitting and it's beautiful. Thank you, James. It's wonderful. I haven't read your other one, so I actually have to go and buy that now too. But what really struck me is, is the journey that you went on, that journey from being a small boy, almost forced out onto the tractor and then falling in love with the farm and the way of farming. And then moving away, because really farming almost drove you out, didn't it? It drove you out of the landscape and it drove you away. And the practices were so not, you know, what you wanted to do. And you've been able to come back. So so what, what took you back to the farm? Why did you go back and have another go? Because obviously things were tough when you left. Yeah, I couldn't. The truth is I couldn't really shake it off. So what happened was I got into my mid-20s, I was... There was no money on the farm. I was butting heads with my dad and that relationship had got a little bit toxic at the time, as it often does in a family farm. And uh, I met my wife and she could see what was happening to me, really, which is that the things that weren't my fault or weren't actually my dad's fault either were, were grinding on my sort of grinding me down and, and, mm -hmm. and doing what they do to a lot of farm people, which is to make you quite, quite sort of angry, quite defensive, quite chippy. And, and smaller than you should be, really. So, so yeah, she was, Helen came along and she was quite cool. She said, look, what, what are you doing? What, this, is not, this is not a good version of you. You need to, however, however much it hurts, you need to break out of this. You need to do something else for a while. And so I did. I went back to evening classes. I got into, I got some really good teachers who said, look, um, you may have flunked out of school the first time, but you, you're quite sort of academically brainy um, and helped me to get into Got to go to university in Oxford, but but practically that was funny because from the minute I, I I changed tack to do that, I never stopped working on the farm. So in Oxford they only have three eight week terms. That still meant that for most of the year I was coming home and working on the farm. It still meant still meant I went to the sheep sales. So I, I never really stopped being a farmer in mm. in my head and my heart. It it just carried on. It just it just led to another me that that would give up a chunk of the week to go work after university would do other work. But yeah, my, my heart and my head never really stopped being a farmer. So it wasn't like I ever properly left. That lovely saying, take the, you can take the boy out of the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy. Yeah, or, or girl. Or girl. It's or girl. Yeah. It's an old saying. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, that's quite right. And I never stopped. I mean, I, I tried to persuade myself at that time because I thought, oh, all right. Because when I left, really, I'd, I'd I burnt my ticket. My ticket was that you worked hard for mum and dad. You didn't get paid very much, but you would earn your right to take on the farm. And I knew at the moment that I left that I'd sort of broken that social contract and my mum and dad could decide to sell the farm when they retired or that, that maybe that was it. I, I was sort of gambling that they would hold on long enough for me to come back somehow. Um, and, th and thankfully they did. My dad saw what I was doing and was quite supportive and we got past all our difficulties and ended up friends. And, and he, he kept the ship afloat, really, until I could come back later on with, not with a huge amount of money, but with some money because I'd done other things. And, um, and yeah, and we ended up allies, really, in keeping the farm. Um, 
I think slightly to my mother's horror because I think she <laughs> she thought we we'd ended this uh, at times difficult relationship with a farm that doesn't barely yeah. pays. Um, and then, yeah, me and my dad sort of slightly undermined my mum's vision of that <laughs> coming to a close. And to be fair, my, my mum loves it as well in a, in a slightly different way, and she supports us now on the farm. So, yeah, it was a it was a funny journey. I had to sort of leave a little bit, or sort of step out of it with one foot to keep it going. Really, I think mm. it would have ended. I think it would have ended really badly if I'd stayed. Uh, yeah. For for my own sake, my own sanity, probably for my mum and dad's sanity, we we had to break to come back together on a slightly more healthy footing later on. Yeah. And it's interesting because maybe that gave you the perspective to see the farm differently because the farm you have now is quite different from the farm that not so different, perhaps from your grandfather's farm, but very different from the farm that your father was working in that in that kind of main period, wasn't it? Because of the external pressures on you to farm more productively in inverted commas, bigger fields, higher yields, you know, getting rid of margins, all of those things. Yeah. So we on, I grew up on two farms, really, a rented farm that was more mm. modern, a bit, bit further down the hill, and then this old farm here where I live and where I'm talking to you from today, which was my grandfather's. But we farmed them all together. But um, probably, the, I mean, the book's about this, but the, the, my farming education really was uh, was that we hardly ever went to the most efficient, best farms in Britain, because they're a long way from here. Uh, but there was two different stages of sort of modernity, really. There was... Uh, our other farm, our rented farm, was about 15, 20 years more advanced, really, more progressive than the one that we're on now. And the difference between those two things made it really obvious. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, my wife and I, I always say this, that even now when we occasionally have to bring some of my friends in with modern machinery to make the hay or something, the foot, they always get off the tractor. And they, they get, these are lads that drive the biggest, fastest machinery. And within a couple of minutes, they get really nostalgic. They're like, oh, wow, you've got flowers like in the old days. And... <laughs> Uh, the, hay, the, the, the hay smells like it used to smell when we were kids. And, and, and I'm looking at them thinking, you don't realize that, you, like, you don't realize the irony of this, do you? You like this, but you're part of this other thing. And, and I got to see that up close. And it, it wasn't like I was some sort of genius that wasn't involved with it. I was just a pretty ordinary farm kid that did the things that every other pretty ordinary farm kid did. And yeah, so, somewhere into my life before I could see it with any context, probably when I was writing this book, actually that you, you sort of step back from it. You go, what, what happened? What, what was that thing that we lived through? What, why was my dad doing those things? Why was my granddad able to get away with something else 20 years earlier? And then, yeah, as I say, that, that forces you to think about the economics and the pressures that the rest of society is putting on farmers and what we're really asking, not just what we say, say we want from the countryside, but what we actually make happen through, through laws, through what we do in the supermarket. Because Sarah's family and my family we're not living by people's rhetoric or or by what it says in nature writing books. We're living by what actually happens in the supermarket or what happens in parliament or what happens with regulators of supermarkets. We're in a pretty brutal, pretty brutal Americanized farming and food system, really, that, that has very little sentiment. Mm. And that's something that you've been working through for a long time on your farm, isn't it, Sarah? I mean, you and your husband have been farming your bit of land for 30 years and his parents farmed it before. And you've had to change and diversify in order to make ends meet because it's not large enough to just be an arable farm. But you are really always under that pressure, aren't you, to produce food more cheaply, but essentially with slightly higher costs. Absolutely. I, I think it's this pressure is two-sided. As farmers, and I'm not a born farmer, um, and I worked off the farm for the first 20 years of our marriage, um, because we couldn't afford for two families to live on the farm, even though we had a diversification. But it, the, 
as a farmer, you want to do the best with your land and the best with your environment. But then you've got this pull on the other side, which says we have free range hens, um, James, and we, we make the feed with the crops we grow um, to try and have less transport and that sort of thing. But with the eggs, you've got the supermarkets governing the price. You've got the um, world market governing the grain price and the feed you're buying. So really, you've got to be as efficient as you possibly can. And that makes you less sustainable in your approach because you're not completely in control with the way you want to do it. And it's um, yeah. it's a pull. Like, it's a pull. What you want to do and what you have to do doesn't sit well, actually. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Sarah's absolutely 100% right. So, yeah, there's always these pressures on us to do things. And often the pressures are wrong. And frankly, the pressures come from all of the rest of us. So Sarah knows this better than me, but if you try to sell eggs, like I'm, I'm in the process of having a really small pasture layer oper- operation, really small, just for neighbors and friends. But do they, do they want to pay the real price of that? Um, probably not. They're probably willing to pay about a third, maybe 50% more than what it costs to get eggs in the supermarket and probably think they're being kind to me by doing so, or to Sarah. <laughs> but, but, but the reality, reality is they might really need to be three or four times the price to pay for it to be done in the way that we would think was ideal or which might be in the way that was the most welfare friendly for the chickens. And, and then you're into really tricky territory, aren't you? Because even the, even the most enlightened, progressive, middle-class people in Britain maybe don't want to pay the true price. And yeah, and then, and then you're into trade-offs, aren't you? Difficult trade-offs. Okay, maybe I can't do it perfect, but I could do it halfway perfect. And that'd be yeah. it. Yeah. But the reality is that we don't pay enough for our food, do we? I mean, you know, you quote the stat in the book of, you know, 35% of income was spent on food in the 50s and it's now about 10%. And this is something we've talked about in the pod before a number of times that there's no such thing as cheap food somewhere along the line someone's paying the price it's either the farmer because incomes are just not high enough and they're not sustainable Sarah's just said the farm wasn't big enough to support two families or we're we're pushing down the price globally and somewhere in the global south of the developing world they're not getting a fair price for their products maybe we just need to rethink that relationship with food as we rethink our relationship with the land yeah, I, I should let Sarah speak really, but um, I, I think we do. So um, do we need to produce more food and more cheaply than we did in the past? Almost certainly, yes. There's a lot more of us. Uh, anybody with any sense realizes that there's lots of people on fixed incomes or, or not enough income. Uh, can those people go without food? Of course not. That would be utterly immoral. So to me, it's about can we find somewhere more progressive in the middle? And I, and I absolutely believe we can. So maybe it isn't that we, we go back to spending 35% of our household budgets on food, but maybe 10% or seven where it's heading to, like in America, maybe that's completely unsustainable and wrong. So, so maybe it's, you know, I, I don't know where it would end up, but maybe it's 15% of our household income. Now, do people want to do that at the moment? Maybe not, or, or they certainly aren't choosing to do so in supermarkets. But I, I think you're right. We, I think what we need to do is to have a sort of cultural awakening about this, isn't it? Where we suddenly think, hang on a minute, food's way more important than, than we thought it was. How our food produ- is produced is way more important than we thought it was. And let's let's change the rules. Let's change the regulations. Let's let's get rid of the stuff we don't want. Let's you know let's take some of that nasty foreign stuff from the wrong places, produced in the wrong ways, out of the scenario. And and let's engineer it. Like people. A lot of farmers are very conservative, politically conservative. Yeah. They wouldn't like this. But, uh, 
but but frank, frankly, I'm not. I, I'm quite radical. I think there are genuinely radical things we'd have to do to to look after the British countryside, to look after British farm animals, to look after British farming. But Sarah, you're a food producer. How do you feel about that? Because we do actually waste a huge amount of food. And we grow enough calories in the world to feed the population more than adequately. And we waste something like six and a half or just over a million tonnes of food a year, which is about 10.2 billion pounds worth. So we waste food. So we are producing enough food somewhere in the system. We're just not producing it in the right ways and distributing it in the right way. How do you feel about that? It's interesting, isn't it, about um, whether we need to, to change where, where we are is fairly affluent. And I think the pandemic has had an effect on people's approach to the food they're buying. And certainly here, there's much more emphasis on local, fresh food. I mean, our private egg sales have gone through the roof um, since the pandemic started. People will come to the farm to buy direct from here. Um, and I think maybe that won't go back because people realise what they can get if they look a bit further but that's a small proportion of the population and as we said we said earlier and the government don't want food prices to increase because then more people will go into poverty and there are people who can't afford to feed their families well enough so we're back again to a yes let's do it this way we want to produce high welfare good tasting fresh food but half the population need it really cheap mass produced because otherwise they're not going to be healthy enough so Straight away, we're back into being pulled in both directions. It's an almost insoluble um, problem. Well, uh, sorry, um, I, I agree with Sarah. The only thing I would add on the end of that, and this is my belief, is there are places that do this. If, if, okay, um, I, I would point people to places like Norway. That th This takes you to having to look at um, the redistribution of wealth, which, which since the 1980s in America and Britain is, is deemed to be sort of a sort of mad communist <laughs> politics or something. But... but <laughs> For about a third of Europe, the northwestern part of Europe, that's not mad politics. That's day-to-day -day normality. They do that. They tax heavily. They have uh, sort of welfare systems that work. They have a redistribution of wealth. They spend more on food, but they're, they're much healthier. They have a, and they have much more control, much more regulation of their farming. I think we could create a system and a society which looked after people like Sarah better. They'd, they'd actually solve some of those structural problems that get us out of the bind. So. Yeah. I'm sort of agreeing with Sarah and saying, yeah, and if we look at the sort of macro politics at this at a global level, we can't expect people like me as a farmer or Sarah as a farmer and her husband to sort all this. You have to, you have to change the rules. You have to change the system. Yeah, absolutely we do. And we have, and it is a political issue and farming has always been political, but I think it's even more political now with the changing of regulations and the changing of subsidies and the impact of coming out of the common agricultural policy and all of the implications of that. And Sarah, I know that this is something that you've been struggling with because going back to some of the things we talked about at the beginning and about the space for the lapwings and, you know, the way that you've been farming in a more sustainable way. Partly because you've had a stewardship scheme, haven't you? And you've actually been able to afford to put some of that land aside in a way that's been more environmentally nature friendly. But the changing nature of, of funding will make that more difficult, won't it? You still have to see what they're actually going to do in, in its entirety, because certainly we've we've got a good percentage in various schemes um, with wildflowers, bird food, lapwing plots that do make a difference but we every we've just gone into a new scheme we've had to make new decisions what's the best way of doing it and still actually having enough land in producing crops because of course the schemes don't pay as much as the arable income so it's a balance we we've decided this time we've put quite a bit down into a two-year legume fallow we have a big problem with weeds black grass that 
are not killed by chemical fertilizers. So you immediately reduce your yield with something you actually can't control. So this is we're going to try um, and smother it with nice grass um, on, a, on a bit of a rotation and see whether that makes a difference. But we know it improves the soil quality. We've seen that already, but will it do it enough? We don't know. <laughs> Sarah, when we walked around your farm recently, you showed me some of these amazing spaces that you've laid down for birds to nest in and to control weeds like black grass um, more efficiently using natural methods. And I think we might get a little clip of that now. Okay, so the bit we're standing on was an arable field. It's about three hectares. And we put it into a scheme 10 years ago and it's got wildflower mix in it. Um, we manage it by taking a mower through in parts to keep on top of the ragwort. But it's really, really dense grass sward, plenty of flowers in here now. And then the section on the other side, we put into a two year legume mix and that is a riot of color in the spring and summer really full of insects, birds, deer love it. It really is, so it's right up to the top to the wood, so it links um, woodland areas and hedgerows. And it's a really, really very species-rich area. But this is only a two-year, this comes out this year, and we put it somewhere else. Why have you only, only got it in for two years, Sarah? Well, that's on, one, that's on the Countryside Stewardship Scheme. They are there for two years. The idea is that you um, use it to get rid of black grass, which is a, a chemical-resistant weed, uh, and improve the soil. And then you move on and do the same one another bit and go back to food production on that area. So it's a form of crop rotation, yeah. like we used to have in the old days? I suppose it is, yes. I mean, it's an elective one, so we, we choose to do it. Um, but it is fascinating to see how effective it's been. That's, that's its third year. So it's improving the quality of the soil and improving the level of pollinators and other associated wild, wildlife, basically. It is, and it's also smothering the weeds that we struggle to control with the chemicals that we've got at our disposal, which really do impact on the food production when we're trying to get a yield. A win-win. Maybe. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see what happens when you put the crop back on. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Who knows? We'll see you next summer. <laughs> James, soil is at the heart of this, isn't it? Because there's a quote, lovely bit in your, in your book when you talk about Henry's soil and the quality of the soil. And then you describe going out and digging and looking at the worms and how important the soil, quality of the soil is. And I think that you've come to the realisation that you need to nurture and care for that soil, but you're doing it differently because you're now managing your fields in a different way, aren't you? And you, this is something which might be quite controversial, especially if we try it out in Sarah's husband, which is that we should stop ploughing. because <laughs> It doesn't plough. We haven't ploughed for years. Yeah. Does no, he not plough? No, he hasn't ploughed since he's been in charge of the farm. No, oh, I take it back then. <laughs> Min till. <laughs> we're, we're, we're quite ahead. <laughs> You're way ahead. So how does that work then? Because he, what's he doing on that bloody great tractor then if he's not ploughing? <laughs> well, ploughing plough, is, is quite a, a, a deep way into the soil. So you're actually turning the soil over and destroying the, the live bit of it. So what we do is we, we work in the smallest area at the top of the soil that we can do. So you, you lift it a little bit, so you'll put tools in that create a bit of airspace and you'll put channels in to drain it underneath, but you won't actually turn the whole surface over. And we're now looking with direct drilling, so literally you harvest the crop beforehand and then you will go into, with your new crop, go into the soil without doing anything to it. Um, so it goes into the live area of soil that's hopefully got a good 
microbiome going in um, and, and work from there. So, yeah, we've been doing that for quite a long time now. Is that something you're uh, doing, James, uh, on your farm? So we, we never, we never plough, but it's not because we're sort of virtuous or progressive like Sarah and her husband. It's because we're old-fashioned. We're, we're, <laughs> we're basically a pastoral farm on a 45-degree slope where it only makes sense to have sheep and cattle. Yes, on some of the hay meadows they used to plough and they would have grown rye or uh, oats, um, but that stopped the best part of 100 years ago now, or certainly 60, 60 70 years ago. Uh, so, uh, so we don't plough anymore. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, just taking a step back from that, I mean, the, that is a remarkable thing that families like Sarah's and ours have had to come to terms with. From, from the beginning of civilization in the Nile and other places like that through to about 25 years ago, we thought plowing was an inevitable way that you produced food. It was in, a, a good thing because it was sort of wholesome and rural, and that's where our bread came from. And yet we now know from soil science that it is deeply destructive. It does damage the ground uh, in, in very, very damaging ways and, and that we have to find ways around it. And Sarah and her husband are sort of practically grappling with that. I, I have to grapple with it less on a pastoral farm in the north of England. But it's, it's pretty remarkable stuff because the way that we were farming 20 years ago or, or much of Britain is still farmed is now beginning to clash with the most progressive ideas from science about how we should do things. And that's, that's, that's really, really radical. Somebody like my grandfather, who died 20 years ago, had never heard even the faintest whisper of this. If you brought him back from the dead now to hear this, he'd say, what are you talking about? How, how can plowing be wrong? So this is, this, is how, uh, this is how radical this is. And you can imagine how difficult that is for people who are sort of quite socially and culturally conservative to get their heads around some of these messages. It's, it's like everything you ever did has been called into question. Mm. And yeah. But I think it's interesting. And if you hear Sarah talking about it, there's now a lot of farmers who, who are adapting, who are changing, who have got their heads around it, who are sort of pushing the boundaries of sort of best practice and doing things differently. It's, I mean, you said my book was optimistic, but there, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic because yeah, if, you yeah, talk to lots yes. of, if you talk to lots of farmers, you find that they're way smarter than we give them credit for. Uh, a lot of them are changing already. Uh, yes, a lot of them are trapped in sort of slightly dodgy bad systems but with a little bit of help and a little bit of education a little bit of uh, push from the rest of us they can switch and do things better mm. the plowing question is interesting because actually we've, we've got this problem with black grass that is really really difficult to manage and we've actually been saying do we need to plow it because that way you actually get rid of it and you can start again and that's a real big discussion because we don't want to but how else do you deal with this weed crop well, you're trying this, this rotational thing at the moment, aren't you? Which is what you showed yeah. me when we, when we walked around the farm. It'll take six years to get round the whole farm. So, you know, it's six years ahead we're talking about maybe having some control and, of black grass. And it's, it's, it's probably worth saying, and Sarah can tell me if she thinks I'm wrong, but the problem is not that disturbance of soil is unnatural. There is actually disturbance of soil in nature. It's just... It's from things like wild boars and things like that. It was small and then it had long periods of rest to recover. So you can make, you could make an argument, as Sarah and her family may have to, that occasional plowing with long periods of recovery after that, which is then helped to have the right plants in doing the right kind of photosynthesis, that that's part of the mix. It isn't that suddenly plowing is, is demonized or you would never use it anywhere. It's, it's really more the the lazy assumption that we all used to live with that you could plow repeatedly the same same ground and that you weren't doing any harm that that's the thing that's gone we now know that's 
that's not a good way to manage soil. Um, and, and anybody who's ever been to the American Midwest, particularly in winter and traveled, you see this taken to its logical conclusion. There's only corn, there's only soy. Uh, the only animals there are in these big confinement industrial sheds. They never go outside. And you're seeing absolutely horrific levels of soil erosion, a dead gulf in the, uh, sorry, a dead zone that's the size of whales in the Gulf of Mexico. You're seeing absolutely remarkable health problems, the sort of poisoning of the watershed beneath mm. these cities and towns. So we've been lazily, ever since the Second World War, because we thought they were the progressive ones, we've been copying that system. And then I hope what's happening now is that British farmers and hopefully British politicians and public are now looking at that journey and saying, hang on a minute, whoa, like that's what we really need to do. We need to say, whoa, hang on a minute, how do we help Sarah and her husband look after that farm in the right way? Not we, we can't magic away a lot of the challenges, but we can, how do we do it properly? How do we farm in a way that keeps the birds, keeps the insects, looks after the soil? And it, it doesn't make it all like a fairy tale where everything's perfect, but we, we do need to have that conversation. And a lot of politicians don't even want to talk about it. One of the things we found is the research isn't there yet. And the last bit of research we looked at showed that ploughing was best, but they've just started a new trial with ploughing and different crops. And we need to see the results of that to help us make the decisions. It's just research is almost behind us. It needs to be in front of us. Yeah, and the education system needs to change as well, doesn't it? Because, you know, you've got all those young men and women going through agricultural colleges over the last two decades being told that you've got to get maximum yield out of the farm. And it's all about, you know, pesticides and, and, and yield rates and not maybe giving the sustainable part of farming that they need in terms of their education and their approaches? I'd, I'd hope that now people are coming out slightly more progressive, but the people in charge of the farms are in their 50s or much older, and they were definitely the product of the, um, you know, hit it hard with chemicals and get the maximum yield out. So they're having to re- re-educate themselves. I'm, I'm probably the thing I'm most gloomy about is the state of agricultural colleges, if I'm honest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know there are good people in there and there's clearly lots of progressive young people challenging it and pushing it from within. And, and hopefully there's some good stuff happening there, but I get lots of horror stories. I meet lots of young people actually who, oh, they write me letters after reading my book and they say, that's not what we're being taught at ag college. Mm. We're still, we're still getting taught the 1980s version of this. And you think, wow, wow, really? Like really? Mm. Yeah. We're in this kind of mismatch, aren't we? Because there's this huge sort of kind of movement for people who want a sustainable, a, a, a rewilded in some places landscape that has opportunities for, for us to, to recreate and support habitats and, and all of the creatures that we've been talking about, you know, hares and curlies and, and owls. And, and yet there's this system that is just two or three steps behind. And that system, you know, whether it's the education system or whether it's the, you know, the, the, the government payment system is not in step with what most of us would really like our landscape to look like and we'd like to be able to support farmers and it's interesting that that you both say that supporting a family on the farm unless it's a huge farm is actually quite a struggle isn't it there just is not enough cash in the system unless you're you know you get payments from elsewhere to do things other than farm there there were some statistics came out of canada recently that i was looking at which were absolutely remarkable it showed it was a graph that showed the share of farm revenue that ended up in the farmer's pocket, basically. It was below zero. <laughs> I was going to say, was, yeah. <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> that surprised me. 
It was below zero. Like you, you, this is mind blowing how weird this is, these systems are that we've created, where almost nothing pays. And 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 I know that people find that a little bit hard to square with farmers with a, a Range Rover or mm. people who seem posh or quite affluent. But overwhelmingly, most of our farming for the last 10, 20 years has been in a system where everybody's making money out of it, except for the farmer. That most farmers are losing money. It's an absolutely remarkably screwed up thing, really. And and, and it's not hard to see why. I mean, you literally have to turn the telly on for five minutes to see an Asda or a Tesco's advert saying we've made it a little bit cheaper. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the driving down of prices from supermarkets, isn't it? But James, what do we do about it? How do we make it more sustainable? How do we bring that sustainability back into allow people to work the land in the way we want them to, families to have farms that they pass on to their children because they're sustainable ventures in terms of, of an income, and also square that with the need to, to protect the environment, to have wild margins, to have becks, as you, you, you describe in your book, that are flowing freely and supporting wildlife and beavers and, and other habitats. How do we do that? How do we square that circle? So, so that's... that's um... That is the question and deserves a straight answer. And I'll try and give it as short a straight answer as I possibly can. So there's, there's little things that we can all do individually. You can, if you live near Sarah, you can find Sarah, you can buy her eggs, you can talk to Sarah and her husband. You can say, I'm, I don't want any middle person at all. I don't want anybody messing with this. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Um, in most bits of the UK, there's vegetable box schemes with people who are organic or farm with ethics that you would approve of. Get online, get on social media, find those farmers that you like and admire. Many of them do home deliveries. Uh, many of them will answer your questions. You can genuinely connect up your ethics with how you spend your grocery budget every week, and you can bring about some very direct change that you can see. That, that's the short answer. Um, I, I, I suspect people should also try and do a little bit of this themselves. If you can get involved with an allotment or a garden, I think nothing teaches you more about how difficult this all is than trying a little bit of it yourself. Um, but the sort of bigger but longer argument is that it does need structural changes. It needs better regulation and a change of power that the supermarkets have. It does need trade policy that stops the cheaper, nasty stuff coming in and under, undercutting Sarah's family and mine. It does need uh, payment systems for public goods, for environmental things that will just simply won't happen without if it's left to the market. It, it needs all of these things, the sort of big strategic stuff coming from the top and our own action at the bottom. And, and I, I would say to anybody listening to this podcast, get a little bit grumpy. Do start asking lots of questions. Do, go, do stop going to the supermarket. Go to your local butcher. And if, if they can't answer your questions about where the meat came from or how it was farmed or which farm it came from, you're not in the right place. Like make, it, make it abundantly clear to them that you'll come back week on, week, week out, if they're buying from a, a sort of local family farm that farms in a way that looks after the landscape, we, we, I think we sort of magically want somebody to come in from the outside and solve all of this. And I don't think it's going to happen. It does. It does. I think um, I'd add to that is as an ex-teacher education. And I think obviously the agricultural colleges need to change, but um, I'm involved with a group. We're setting up a Saffron Warden farmer's market. We can't believe there isn't one, um, but we're going to do a farmer's market with an educational slant because what is the point of getting people into the market to buy your produce without making sure they understand how it's got there? So that's what we're working on at the moment to start in July when all the farmers are too busy to be there back home. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what we need. Education is at the heart of this, but maybe also we need to change our practices. You're making an important point, but one more point about the last issue is 
we need a change in farming as well. So when we were doing that industrialized, go like hell American thing, the last thing you wanted, because your farming's ugly and, and always at the edge of going wrong, the last thing you want is people on your land. <laughs> the last thing you want is, is public scrutiny. But if you're going to do the things that I'm trying to do and that Sarah's family are trying to do, it's the opposite of get off my land. It's get on my land. Like bring the school, bring bring the people, like come and see what we're doing and understand why this matters. So so farming itself has to change, I think. I think we've got to stop being grumpy, get off, get off my land types. <laughs> and, it, and we've got to be actually open, open to scrutiny, open to people looking, open to people walking in and onto our land and say, okay, this is what I can do. But you've got to back me. Like this is a social contract between us. We've we've got to we've got to take some agency, and and I'll be the first to admit a lot of my dad's friends and some of my friends are still a bit grumpy and are very suspicious of the public. So there's work to be done within farming. But this kind of thing Sarah's talking about, where you take it to the town, you take it to the the, the sort of town square, and you you help people to understand and you talk to them. This this is how we get back. We we reconnect and we mend these things. Yeah, and- I applaud it. Yeah, your book has done a huge amount to do that, to, to help with that, I think. And, and, you know, sharing your story and the things you've experienced, but also, I guess, making all of us aware that we are responsible for it too. It may be the land that your family own and that you farm, but actually it's something that we have together as a nation, isn't it? It's a shared part of our, our, our heritage and our culture. And, you know, I love the, the the expression. I mean, you named the third part of the book utopia, but you actually admit you're not trying to create a utopia. You're just trying to create somewhere that is is, you know, decent for all of us to live in. And I think that that's incredibly important because people do want to connect with the land, but so often we feel we can't, you know, we drive along, you know, a country lane and there's a hedge and then there's a, you know, huge arable field. If you're down here in the South, it's just wheat for as far as you can see. And you think it just feels hostile and unwelcoming and we don't feel welcomed in. So I think it's really, really important that messaging about actually encouraging farmers to, you know, responsibly let people into their land and to see what's happening, but also for us to take a more active role as consumers and as citizens to support what farmers are doing and to understand what farmers are doing and, and stop putting people in boxes. Because I think you're quite right, that thing about posh farmers, lots of money in big Range Rovers. We stick them in a box, we don't think about it. And then we go to the supermarket and buy something in plastic that has never seen the light of day, you know, and we just need to think differently about that relationship, I think. Um, James, I wonder if I could ask you just to read a bit from your book, because it is a it is it is a beautiful book and wonderfully written. And there's a particular passage where you talk about the land as a poem. And I just wondered if you might share that with our listeners. Our land is like a poem in a patchwork landscape of other poems written by hundreds of people, both those here now and the many hundreds that came before us, with each generation adding new layers of meaning and experience. And the poem, if you can read it, tells a complex truth. It has both moments of great beauty and of heartbreak. It tells of human triumphs and failings, of what is good in people and what is flawed, and what we need and how in our greed we can destroy precious things. It tells of what stays the same and what changes, and of honest, hard-working folk clinging on over countless generations to avoid being swept away by the giant waves of a storm as the world changes. And it's also the story of those who lost their grip and were swept away from the land, but who still care and are now trying to find their way home. Thank you. Thank you. And that seems to encapsulate it, really. I think that's where we all are. We've been swept away, but we want to come back. And it's thanks to farmers like both of you that that perhaps we can do that and we have a chance to reconnect with the land in a different way. 
Um, I wonder if you, you know, we should call it to a close, but I wonder, would you have a kind of last call? You've, you've already said to listeners, they need to get out there, you need to connect, you need to buy direct. What would be your call to policymakers and to government in these difficult times? Sarah, what are you going to ask for? I just think they need to listen to farmers and not just make it up in Whitehall. They're, they're certainly being better. The consultation with the Sustainable Farm Initiative is good, but they're not talking to those of us who've already started. So I don't quite know what's going to come out of that. Um, but yeah, lis- listen to those that are doing and actually work with them to move it in the right direction. Yes, because you've got years of experience, haven't you? 20 years of having wild margins and having, you know, laying land down for birds and, and at risk of losing that if the, if the farming subsidy system changes. So they need to listen to where you are now as well, don't they? And, and enable us to keep it going, because if they're going to pay us, they've got to pay us enough to make it worthwhile doing because we are a business. We want to do it, but we also need to make the income. Yeah. And James, what would be your call to the policymakers and the politicians? Um, I, I think sim- similar to Sarah, we need, we need to set up systems and schemes which which pay the right amount of money to get people to do these things. So um, occasionally they get, they get it right. So in, in the countryside stewardship scheme at the moment, there's an option called Making Space for Water, which pays for 20 years a decent amount of money per hectare for people to take their land out of production to, to slow floodwaters or to create wetlands or bogs. We, we've been doing that. It's a good rate of return for, for marginal land. And because it's guaranteed for 20 years, you're seeing um, in many of the valley bottoms here, even many of the most obsessive sheep farmers are saying, hang on a minute, if the public are genuinely willing to commit to that for 20 years and it pays properly, who am I to stand in the way of that? Let's, you know, let's get real. And it's delivering really big change here. So I, w- I would give that as an example of the kind of positive things that you can do, genuinely paying for things of public benefit to stop the city down the river flooding 20, 30 miles away. Um, and then probably the one I, I care about massively is, I think trade policy is way more powerful than most people realise. Yeah. We need to be we need to be absolutely clear that if things are banned in this country because we don't approve of them, that we're not importing the things produced from systems el- elsewhere that are produced using those things we've banned in our own country. And I, I saw a really obscene thing the other day. Um, there are chemicals that we abandon in this country, agricultural pesticide chemicals, which we still make in this country and we export to other places like India. I mean, <laughs> the, morality, the, the morality of some of this stuff, it absolutely stinks. I don't think most English people want this. In fact, when you ask people about like an American trade deal that would drive down standards, 87, 90% of people are on British farmers' side. So yeah, my my call to arms, to, particularly to farmers, would be: let's own all of this. Let's let's be the progressive, sensible ones, trying to make things better. And I think the public will back us. I think the overwhelming majority of people listening to this podcast will want farmers who look after the land, who look after nature, and we need to we need to mobilise that power and that goodwill behind us. We do absolutely, we do, and fantastic. Thank you so much. A great call to arms, but also eminently doable if we do this together. So a huge thank you to my guests, to, to Sarah and to Vodka, who wasn't there, but to Sarah and her family. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been a wonderful opportunity to talk directly to James. So thank you for that, James. Your book has <laughs> inspired us to rethink because even though it's uplands, it still talks to us with our with our grain fields. So thank you. So there we are. Oh, th- thank you, Sarah. And really admire, really admire what you're doing there. Hopefully I can come and see you someday and see, see some of the challenges. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, James. I'm sure we, we, she'd love that. And thank you to you. And um, thank you too for the book, because it is wonderful, An English Pastoral and Inheritance. Do go out and buy it. And if you're going to buy it, please, would you buy it 
from the Hive or an independent bookstore, not from Amazon, because you can get it there and that way you help your local booksellers. You can catch episodes of Planet Pod on our website, theplanetpod.com, or why not subscribe and have it drop into your inbox on regular occasions and never miss an episode. Uh, We also now have a Patreon programme where there's little bits of extra bonus material um, and you can find some of the highlights from behind the scenes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.